Well, happy Sunday. We are starting a brand new collection today, and I am super thrilled to go on this journey with you. Um, this might be the longest collection we've ever done because this collection is going to last us 10 solid weeks. But the reason why is because we are going to look into the life and earthly ministry of Jesus. So over the next several weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at their accounts of Jesus, and we're going to talk about the most significant conversations, the most significant experiences that Jesus had here on the earth that would, we know, shape all of eternity for all of us, forever, for all of time. So we're going to dig into... We're going to follow Jesus through some of these significant events, conversations, encounters, from his introduction to the world, to his sacrifice for the world, Jesus came to introduce something brand new, something revolutionary for the time, so much so that it is still revolutionary for us today in the 21st century, looking back and reading what was written, what was inspired in the first century. What Jesus came to do was not Judaism 2.0. It was not just, okay, here's the 600 laws. We're just gonna add to that. This will be a cool new thing. Jesus came to completely flip religion upside down and do something totally different. And not just brand new to the world. The most important part is brand new for the world, for all of us, for all of mankind. And at the end of today's message, I'm going to give you an idea of where we'll be heading over the next several weeks. But today's message is actually laying the groundwork. So if I'm being totally honest, this message is a little odd for me because I'm not telling like any personal stories. I might not even say anything funny, which is weird. Like, I don't know what to do with that. So if I say anything like remotely funny, if you could just laugh a little louder, well, really, it's like for me. It's not for you. It's for me. It's Mother's Day. So you have to, because I'm a mom and you have to do what I say on Mother's Day. So if I say anything remotely funny, just laugh as loud as you can to make me feel better. But we are going on this journey where today we need to set the stage. Every main act, if you've ever been to a concert or to a theater or anything like that, if you've been to some kind of show, the main act always has a warm-up, right? There's always someone to get the crowd on the same page, getting all like the juices flowing, everyone's excited. Today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the warm-up for Jesus that always was pointing to him. That was saying, just hold on. I'm going to tell you something good, but what he's going to say is great. So today, we want to look at John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, depending on who is calling him by name, and we're going to recognize what he did. He recognized this moment of going, hey, look, I'm not the main act. I'm just getting you warmed up so that when it comes, when the main act arrives, you're ready and you can catch it. So today we're looking at him, and the reason we call him John the Baptist and not John the Presbyterian or John the Methodist or John the Pentecostal, like, we're not calling him that because John the Baptist has nothing to do with his theological leaning. The reason we refer to John as John the Baptist is because for the first time in history, theologians, historians all agree that there was no one prior to John who was doing what he was doing. In the first century, 
baptism was intended for non-Jewish people to become Jewish. So there was a lot that went into simply being baptized. Prior to being baptized, you had to do a lot in the temple. There was a special meal. You had to confess some things to someone with some sort of temple authority. And then baptism was more of a ceremonial washing that was done in private. It was not like this public display for all to see. It was more between you and someone in the temple with some sort of authority who was helping you acknowledge, I once was not Jewish and now I am. I'm being baptized into this way of living, this sort of life ahead. So when John comes on the scene and he starts like manhandling people and shoving them down in the water, like this was a huge deal for everyone because John shows up and he's like, we're going to submerge you fully. And people were like, whoa, 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 hold on. So we want to look at John and the first time we see him is in the book of Luke. And Luke has a way of being so descriptive and so detailed that even historians who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah will cite Luke as a historical reference because he was so accurate, so intentional, so meticulous about what he shared, which is the nature of who he was, that he was so great at painting a scene, painting a picture to help us understand now today, but really more so first century believers to understand where we are, what we're looking at, what's happening. So in Luke chapter 3, this is how he introduces us to John the Baptist. He says, It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was a ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was a ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Lysanus was the ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Try saying that 20 times fast, like I did a pretty good job. So what Luke is saying is, this is where we are. This is the region we're talking about. This is the moment in time. So often we can read things in our 21st century English canonized Bible and just glaze over them and go, well, this is a list of names that I don't understand, so I'm just going to move on to the meat of the story. But what's cool is Luke is saying, hey, listen, fact check me. Fact check me. If you think I'm wrong, this is what I'm talking about. Here are the facts. This is who was where and what they were doing and who was in charge of what region. So that anyone who would have read this account would have gone, okay, I know exactly what we're talking about. Because what's important is what follows next. So Luke is saying, listen, I know I was there. I saw it happen. And then in verse 2, he says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So he's saying, listen, I know what I'm talking about because I saw it. I was there. I witnessed it. This is what we're talking about. So then when someone would have read verse 2, it wouldn't have actually been a verse. It would have just been a line and a letter. But when someone read it, they would go, oh, he actually knows what he's talking about. Let's pay attention. But why was he in the wilderness? Why was John there? Why out in the middle of nowhere? So if we jump over to Matthew chapter 3, because we're looking at all of the Gospels to describe this story from all of the different vantage points. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, it says, People from Jerusalem 
and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. So the reason we're even talking about John the Baptist is because the entire region, and this was not like one small city, this was a giant region whose influence would ripple out into all of creation. All of this region was being affected by this guy in the wilderness. Now, don't mistake what John does. John was not like a normal-looking dude, okay? He's out in the wilderness. His nails are long. He's eating locusts for, like, meals for fun because he likes them. So you can imagine his hair has got to be crazy. He's just wearing, like, animal skins. He looks wild in the wilderness. And now this entire region, thousands of people are showing up to hear what this weirdo has to say. So it, of course, is starting a ripple effect. People are starting to hear. People are starting to notice what's going on down there at the Jordan River. This picture we see isn't a handful of people listening. This is an entire culture leaning in to hear what John has to say. And as the crowds are listening, verse 6 says, they confessed their sins. Now here's where the trouble starts. As we read it in our 21st century Bible, this doesn't feel like a big deal. But to the first century reader, this was unheard of. There was no amount of confessing your sins to just anybody, especially not outside of the temple. So we're not just outside of the temple a little bit in the streets. We are removed completely from the temple altogether. And these people are showing up and confessing the things that are wrong and broken and distant in their lives. So, of course, the temple hears and sees what's happening, and they start to get upset. Then it gets worse. Verse 6 continues. Not only were they confessing, John was baptizing them in the Jordan River. They weren't going through any sort of ritual cleaning. They were not speaking with someone who had full temple authority. They weren't even addressing someone inside of the temple. And now he's baptizing them. And we've never seen anybody do anything like this before. So people start to listen. People start to notice. Things start to go awry. John was causing a complete stir. And it felt irreverent. To those who had come before, who were studiers and keepers of the law, this felt wrong. So what was he doing? This is what John says about these events. Okay, now to be clear, we're not talking about John the baptizer. We're talking about John who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Two different guys. Because we have to keep in focus that what we're reading now was just a letter written in a very familiar way. So it'd be as if you wrote a letter to a friend. Like if I wrote a letter to a friend, I'm not gonna sign it, Hannah White, you know, the one at Village Heights that like loves you so much. Like it's me, the blonde hair, sometimes in a bun, sometimes in a ponytail, sometimes down, it's me. Like that's not what they were doing. They were writing a letter to a friend who would have known when I sign it, John, you know, it's me. So John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is talking about John the Baptist. So we're talking about two guys who were there. John, who saw everything that Jesus did, is referring to 
John the Baptist, who is laying the groundwork for what's about to happen. So John the disciple, author of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 7 says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Keep in mind that as we talk about John, the gospel account of Jesus over the next several weeks, John, the apostle, wrote this at a very old age. So what he's writing to us is through the lens of not only knowledge, but wisdom. Because he's reflecting back on his life and going, Jesus was my friend. Like, I lived life with him. We did a lot of things together. We walked side by side on so many journeys. And yet, he was this light. This light that was inside of him changed everything around him, including me. And now John is trying to write to us to explain to us what is inexplicable. So the first century reader would have known so much about John's life and so much about what he was reflecting on so that now today we can have a deeper understanding. And in verse 15, John the disciple continues and says, John the Baptist testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said. This was his whole message. Everything that John the Baptist wanted people then and people now to understand is that someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. And then the next verse is really the foreshadowing for the conflict that we'll see over the next several weeks. The conflict between Jesus and the temple. The conflict is, comes when you say, for the law was given through Moses. Okay, first century hearers, we understand. We understand the law because the law is our way of living. There is no removing the law from who we are because we are fully Jewish. And if we trust God and we believe in God and we say that we serve God, then the law is everything. There is no separating our life from the law. And the law wasn't just like, okay, you must drive under 65 or you will get a speeding ticket. Thanks. Like, it was a big deal. Everything that encapsulated the law was kept in the Holy of Holies. And just a few minutes ago during worship, we sang about the veil. What is the veil? The veil is what separated those who were not holy enough from those who were holy enough from entering into the Holy of Holies and understanding the law. There was no making new laws. The law was the law was the law. This is what we did. And so once a year, the high priests were allowed to enter into this space. And so much power and so much reverence was encapsulated in that space and was required of the person entering that when they went through that veil, through that thick, heavy curtain that housed the power of God, they had to tie a rope around their ankle and a bell around the bottom of like their, we wouldn't call it a dress, but you know, their dress. There were bells around the bottom of it. So that if the bells stopped ringing, that meant they died under the power of God. 
and no one could go in there and get them because they too would die. So the rope was so they could drag the dead body out. So real weird. So when we're talking about the law, we're talking to people who understood this is not something to mess around with. This is not something to joke about. This is not something that we can just handle in a cavalier manner. This is the power of God. And that came from Moses. So we know who Moses is. Moses is the giver of the law. So when John continues, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. That was the contrast. That was the conflict. That's what made this experience so uncomfortable, yet so profoundly significant. Something new was coming. Jesus was not an and, he was an instead of. Meaning it was not, here are the 600 laws, and this is also what Jesus said, so now this is like the thing. No, this was an exchange. This was a new covenant. Jesus came to do away with the old things and start something new. And you can imagine that rhetoric like that was causing a giant disturbance throughout the region. So the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites who were like the associate priests, like they were assistant to the regional priests were the Levites, to find out what was going on. So in verse 19, it says, this was John's testimony, John the Baptist, when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? We see that something is different. People are no longer in the temple. Like the temple is pretty quiet and no one's there and they're all here down by the river. So who are you? What are you doing? And he came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. John knew immediately what they were asking because they had been waiting for a Messiah. They knew that a Messiah was coming. Didn't know what it was gonna look like. Didn't fully understand, but they knew that something was coming. The last book of the Old Testament in your English canonized Bible is Malachi. And Malachi was a prophet. And so the very last book in the Old Testament, last chapter, chapter four, last two verses, verses five and six, this is what they say. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then 400 years passed in silence. The last thing that God spoke to his people through a prophet was, I'm sending Elijah and you're going to know that that means the day of the Lord is coming. That something is changing, something is shifting when Elijah comes. So through their narrow lens of understanding, they were literally waiting for Elijah. So when they roll up on this scene where they find John and they say, hey, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. And then they say, well, then who are you? And they ask, are you Elijah? Because that was their understanding is that if you're not the Messiah, you must be Elijah. And that means that something is coming, but it's not fully what we understand, 400 years passed. 
waiting, waiting. John just replies, no, not Elijah either. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Then who are you? You can almost feel the frustration building where they're like, okay, not the Messiah, not Elijah, not the prophet. Who in tarnation are you, you wild man in the wilderness? Temple assistants couldn't go back to their bosses and say, well, there were things happening. People were being manhandled and dunked into the water. People were confessing sins. That got real weird. But we don't know who he is. We can tell you who he's not. Could you imagine going to your boss and saying, I don't know what the answer is. I can tell you what the answer is not, but I don't know what the answer is. No. They're like, well, he's not the Messiah, not the prophet, not Elijah. We don't know. This was a disruption on so many levels to their status quo. What John was doing was beginning that shift that was about to happen. And change is hard, no matter who you are, especially when you feel like you have power and control within the temple. This change would be extremely hard. So in verse 23, John tells them exactly who he is. He says, look, I get it. You're frustrated. You want an answer. I want you to have an answer. So here's the answer I can give you. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, and remember, he's talking to people who would have absolutely had the words of Isaiah memorized, not just like be familiar. They would have known when he said these words, they would have immediately gone, oh, so now you're going to quote Isaiah. Okay, you got some guts, man. He says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Listen, something good is about to happen, and I'm just the starting act. I'm just the warm-up. The Lord is coming. Get ready. Don't miss it. Here he comes. Verse 24 says, Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah, and you aren't Elijah, or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? Listen, dude, you have no religious authority whatsoever. You cannot speak on behalf of the temple. That is not your place. You are not in that level of authority. So who do you think you are? John told them, I baptized with water, but right here in the crowd, right here among us, is someone you do not recognize. He says, look around at the sea of people whose lives are already being changed. You think I'm a big deal because I can attract this level of crowd? Trust me, I am no big deal because among us right now is the only one who is. Verse 27 says, though his ministry follows mine, meaning right now I am doing the work but his is about to start. I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. Unsatisfied with this report when the scouts get back and they say, hey, listen, temple leaders, high priest, authority over all things religious, we still don't have a solid answer for you. We know what he's not. He told us what he was. It didn't really make sense to us. They say, okay, you know what? 
Some jobs you just have to do for yourself. So we're going to go get the caravan, circle the wagons. Let's go. We're headed down to the valley. We're going to figure out what the weirdo in the wilderness is doing. So these are the guys that like, as they roll through the streets, as they roll up onto a crowd, people would have known who they were. They would have known they were a big deal. They would have presented themselves as a big deal. And of course they were. They were the high priest. They were a big deal. So you can imagine as they get to this scene, the crowd would have started to part ways to allow them to come all the way down to John. A hush surely grew over the crowd as they see, oh my goodness, all of the temple is here. They've all come to see what John is doing guys would have made their way right down to John. And then back in Matthew chapter 3, it says, But when he saw, he being John, many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. Dude's got guts. And he says, You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented your sins and turned to God. This would have been the first time anyone heard this concept. We know that this concept would have continued to build and to grow through Jesus' own earthly ministry. But for the first time, someone is saying, listen, the days of religion in this way are over. There are no more loopholes. There is no more selfishness. It's either others focused or don't say you're in. Days of compassionless living are over. John chapter 1 says, This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, now imagine, the day before, the fanfare, the parade, the production, because all of the temple had rolled up to the river. What a sight it would have been for all of the region, all of the town, to see these people out and about and talking to John. The next day, the contrast of Jesus just simply being in the crowd and walking up to John calmly, lovingly, patiently. Pause and imagine. God has come to earth in human form, and all who are looking on as John is preaching and baptizing see what's happening and don't yet understand. And so John says to them, look. He doesn't say believe. He doesn't say understand. He doesn't say, imagine a world where. He doesn't say, now just for a moment, if you could close your eyes and really picture and turn off your mind. He says, look, examine. There he is, the Lamb of God. You think that you have to bring a sacrifice to the temple, that that's the only way to have remission for your sins, but God has sent a sacrifice on your behalf and you don't fully understand yet. God was bringing a lamb to the people far from the temple who takes away, who picks up and carries off 
so that it's no longer on you, the sin of the world. Wait, 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 wait. Of the entire world? Because I thought we had enemies and that we were at war with the people who were at war with God. And now here you are saying that this sacrifice is for all of us? I thought we were a chosen people, that it was only us who this Messiah would benefit. And now you're saying it's for everyone? That's different than what we thought. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. God had come to them. It was no longer about a pilgrimage to the temple. God was there in their midst. Their religious system was designed to keep them separated from others, to keep them distant from the people who didn't agree. And now here John is saying, believe that God is reversing course to do something different. Verse 30 says, he is the one I was talking about. When I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. What we're doing here, all of us gathered on this riverbank, everyone confessing, everyone being washed clean, this is because he is here to do something new. Jesus was the bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. What they understood and what they were about to see, he was the bridge between the two. But those who profited most from the status quo were the least likely to let it go. They weren't inclined to lean into that change because they were the ones most profitable. The temple system was wealthy and powerful and corrupt, and Jesus did not have nice things to say about them, so much so that later they were the guys who crucified him. So these guys there at the river going, who are you, are you Elijah? Same guys who later would crucify Jesus. Joke's on them because it was part of the plan all along. Jesus was the new covenant, the new arrangement, a replacement for the old one. One of the reasons you might have resisted Christianity at any point in your life is probably because you were handed a Bible and someone told you everything in it is absolutely true, which is true. Everything in the Bible is true. It is God's word, but not every word is for everyone in every season. So the Old Testament was written to a nation. It was written to help them connect to God. And then when Jesus came, he was the prophecy fulfilled. What he did was something new. So you can't take your Bible and read it all the same. It's so important to know where you are, what's the scene, what's significant in this moment so that you can glean what God is trying to speak to all of us through his word. Context matters. Jesus was the new covenant, the new command. He replaced Moses as the lawgiver which we've talked about already, was a very big deal. Jesus would raise the standard that Moses set, where he would reduce the 600-plus Jewish laws into two, and then in the end, all the way down to one. 
everything that they had believed that was summed up in the law, Jesus reduced to one. As we focus in on significant moments in his earthly ministry, what we will focus on, what we will be studying is this new covenant, this new command that created a new movement. It was no longer stationary. It was no longer private. It was a movement for all of mankind. Jesus was baptized by John, and so it began. The stage was set for God's promise to Abraham to be fulfilled through a man who came as a lamb from God to take away the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, the weight of all sin. But before that, there were sermons to preach, there were people to heal, there were stories to tell, there were tables to topple, there were things that Jesus had to do before we could meet him on the cross and see him resurrected. God was up to something new for you, for me, something significant for the entire world. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we are so overwhelmed by the power of the scene laid by John. Thank you for letting him pave the way. Thank you for allowing us to see these words in scripture, knowing that he was just a voice in the wilderness crying out to prepare the way for you so that we can see that reflected in our own lives. That we are not the story, we are not the hero, we are just a voice crying out, make way for our God, our King, our Savior and Lord. So Jesus, we thank you for all that you mean to us, all that you do in us, all that you let flow out of us. We worship you and we thank you for this journey that we are about to go on to deepen our faith in you and our knowledge in scripture. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.